talents to glorify the Lord. Praise the Lord. One of these days I might learn a big one of them things too. <laughs> Genesis chapter 6 is where we'll be at this morning. I've asked you to take your Bibles if you have one with you today. Genesis chapter 6. Please stand with me as the honor God of reading His Word together this morning. Genesis chapter 6. Got my microphone on now. Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to be going through at least a couple of three chapters here, but I'm not going to read all the verses right now. But Let's look at chapter 6 beginning with verse 9. It says this. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 14. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort to the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of creeping things, of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Verse 21, also take with you every sort of food that's eaten. And store it up. He shall serve us food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. Let's pray together. We're reminded in your word that you see all things. Nothing escapes your notice, whether good or bad. Humble us before you, Lord, and help us to seek our refuge in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Within the past week, I've spoken with two former church members of a church I pastored in Kansas City area. Two of the most righteous men I know, if you're going to describe men as righteous men, godly men, I would describe Rick Powell and Jim Cup as righteous men, men that love God and walk with God. You don't know them, but I know them very well. And about a week ago, Dan and I traveled to Houston, Texas to be at the funeral of Rick Powell's son, John Harlan Powell, who's a pastor there in Texas, 38 years old, he has four children, 11 years old and under. And he was helping a stranded motorist, and while he was helping the motorist, 
He pushed his friend out of the the way and said, watch out, and an 18-wheeler ran over him and killed him. We went down, because we're very close to Rick and Jan, his wife Jan, and went down and talked with them and sought to be with them. And as they mourned with tears in their eyes, they still know that the Lord is their righteousness. The Lord is a refuge for them. And then this week I called Jim Cup. He was a deacon at our church there as well. And, and I called Jim and talked to him on the phone. His wife's been battling cancer for some time. And this week he had posted on Facebook that they were telling him the, the cancer is now terminal. And they have decisions to make about whether to do more chemo or to enter into palliative care. And as Jim spoke on the phone and as I talked with him on the phone, Of course, he's struggling, but he said, you know, Brother Steve, I know where my help comes from. If you know the psalm he refers to, our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He knows that the Lord is his refuge. This week, I was reading a book by a Puritan from the 17th century, John Flavel, with the title, The Righteous Man's Refuge. And in that book, reminding us of the same things that at all times... The believer has a refuge, and it's the Lord himself. John Flavel says it's the Lord's attributes, his character, his promises that we go to. That's our refuge. The Lord is our refuge that we go to. And as we look at the story of the book, or we look at the story of Jonah and the flood, it's another example in the Scripture to describe to us in all of its horror and all of its devastation to describe to us that the righteous man has a refuge. It describes to us about the character, the attributes and promises of God. It reminds God's people, Israel, the Israelites who would read this and us later as we read it now and hear it now that the Lord is our righteousness. He's a refuge for those who live righteously. He's a refuge for God's people. He provides that for His people. And we're to go to Him. So as we look at this story this morning, we hear these familiar verses about Noah and the flood. There's three lessons, really four lessons this morning I want to share with you about the Lord and the righteous refuge He provides for the righteous. Now last night, I went upstairs to wrestle my youngest, Titus. We wrestle every once in a while. The oldest two are getting too old to wrestle. The oldest two boys, but Lydia still likes to wrestle. I can handle her a little bit. I went up to wrestle Titus in his room, and he turned the light off and said, Dad, you're a zombie. And if I turn the lights on, Dad, that means zombies don't like the lights, so you gotta die. So I'd wrestle him in the dark, and he'd eventually make his way to the light switch when I let him and he'd turn the lights on and then I would fall on the floor and we just had a big old time well I didn't plan on it but my oldest two boys my 14 and a half year old my almost 13 year old walked into the room and they turned the lights off and they wanted to wrestle dad well I hadn't done that in a while and I didn't have enough sense to think about taking my glasses off and I didn't think about how almost 13 year old could just about beat your brains out with a pillow Because that's just about what happened. I thought he was going to give me a concussion. Then the other one, the 14 and a half year old, got the pillow and about 
broke my glasses, bent them. I had to go fix them later. I thought later on, you know, I was in the dark. I didn't need my glasses on anyway. Should have just put them up. So as later as I sat on the couch, kind of exhausted and sweating and my head hurting and my glasses bent, I thought to myself, if you mess with the heathen, little heathens, I'm just teasing now, you're going to pay for it later if you hang out with the heathen. Now, in all seriousness, this morning, one of the first lessons we look here in the book of or Genesis about the story of Jonah and the flood is there's a payday coming someday for the unrighteous. And if you choose to follow the crowd of the heathen, you choose to be like the unrighteous, you choose to do what's right in your own eyes, there's a payday coming someday, as R.G. Lee preached long ago, there's a payday coming someday for the unrighteous. God sees man's wickedness. We see that plainly in the text, don't we? Well, if you look in your Bible there in verse 5 of chapter 6, it says in verse 5, look at it, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. Then if you look on down in verse 11, you looking at your Bible? Verse 11 says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Look at verse 12. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. So one of the things we need to know right now is God sees unrighteousness. He sees man's wickedness. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 say. For the word of God is a living and active, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God sees the wickedness that's going on in the world. And in, we can respond to that in two ways. We can, first of all, we could take solace in that as believers, right? Because we see a lot of wickedness going around. A lot of injustice prevailing in the world. We see the wicked often prosper around us. We wonder why the Lord's letting that happen. And we're reminded in this text that the Lord sees this wickedness. And there's a payday coming someday for the unrighteous. But we're also sort of made solemn by what we see in this text that God sees the wickedness of man even the corruption that's in the hearts of men because we're sinners and God sees our wickedness and we may be fooling everybody else but we're not a fooling God God sees man's wickedness and God sends a flood of judgment literally a flood in the book of Genesis and he warns Noah about it but what we're reminded is the flood here in Genesis, worldwide as it is, not to be repeated again, that there's been many judgments since. Why not long later, God's people Israel were in Egypt, and God sent plagues upon the Egyptians, judgments from God, because God controls nature and God controls all things. All are in His beckoning power, His beckoning will under His power. And so He sends plagues upon the Egyptians. He sends a famine in the days of the judges 
Jesus says there's wars and rumors of wars that take place because of the sins of men. In our own generation, we've heard about AIDS, a judgment from God. We have to be very careful to say, well, this certain thing's happening in the world because of that specific sin. You understand that? But we do need to understand that the wickedness that's taking place in the world and all the horrible things that take place in the world are judgments from God and gracious warnings from God at the same time to remind us that there's a payday coming someday for the unrighteous so that we might be warned graciously by God to flee because there's a far greater judgment coming than 9-11 or a microscopic virus that's upturned the world. Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, so it will be when the coming of the Son of Man comes. Everybody be going about getting married, going to work, doing their own thing. Life just going on as normal. People waxing in sin. And then the Lord Jesus is going to come. And one will be in the field and the other left. And I take that to mean the one that's being taken is the one that's being taken to judgment. Because when the flood came, they were taken and swept away. And Jesus is going to come and take people to judgment. But for those that remain, who are the righteous, will find him to be a refuge. So right now, as we consider this first point, there's a payday coming someday for the unrighteous. Everybody right now is concerned about the virus, or a lot of people are anyway. Some people act like, well, I'm not concerned about it at all. Think it's a hoax, you know, there's extreme, whatever. But I want to tell you this morning, you already got one. You already got a virus, and you can't do nothing about it. There ain't going to be a vaccine. There ain't no, going to be no cure found in this world. It's found only in what God provides in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's this virus of sin that all before Him are unrighteous. There's a payday coming someday for the unrighteous. God sees man's wickedness. And he sends a flood of judgment. You may come in here this morning fooling everybody, fooling the church family. Maybe somebody thinks you're the best teenager ever was. You're the best kid ever was when they see you in here this morning. And you get home and you treat your parents and talk to them like they're dirt. You ain't a fooling God. You come in here this morning looking good before your brothers and sisters in Christ. You treated your wife like she was garbage on the way to church this morning. You ain't a fooling God. And consider, as we look at this passage of Scripture here this morning, that God sees unrighteousness. And there's a payday coming someday for the unrighteous. This is a gracious warning in this passage of Scripture for us to flee from our sins and find refuge in what God has provided. There's a payday coming someday for the unrighteous. Secondly, a second lesson we reminded of this morning is it pays to be righteous in this generation. There's a payday coming someday for the unrighteous, but it pays to be righteous in this generation. Sometimes we don't think so. Sometimes we think that, man, I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to be godly. I'm trying to put the Lord first. And this still ain't happening for me that I've been praying for. Or this person got the promotion over here and they're just living as wickedly as they can. 
and I'm trying to do what's right. Seems like the wicked prosper and the righteous don't. But we're reminded in this passage of Scripture that it pays to be righteous. And when it says here about Noah, if you look here in the Bible, notice how it describes him in verse 9 again. Look at your Bible. It says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. What's that mean? Does that mean he was perfect? That means he was sinless? Well, no, it don't. But he's described as righteous. When we went to the funeral last week, of John Harlan Powell. We were there and the pastor got up and spoke about John Harlan, who's a church planner in Houston. And he and the pastor would often meet because church planning is a difficult task. And he said John Harlan was always transparent and had many questions and would pour out his heart. He, was, he said John Harlan was a righteous man. And that puzzled me to say somebody is righteous without qualifying it and saying, well, they're righteous because they're made righteous in Jesus. He didn't say that. He said, John Harlan was righteous. He was a righteous man. And it's not qualified here in this text about Noah. It says Noah was righteous. Now, what's that mean? This means that this is someone, just as the pastor described about John Harlan, our friend, who's concerned about doing what's right and seeks to do so. And repents of their repents of their sins, seeks to do what's right in God's eyes. Notice what the Bible says about this righteousness and how it's displayed of Noah in verse 22. Look at verse 22 in your Bible. God instructed Noah to build this ark, right? Took him over 100 years to build it. And he says Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Collecting animals. Just imagine the mockery he may have experienced as he built that ark and went around creating a makeshift zoo. But Noah did all that God commanded him. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Look at chapter 7, verse 9. The end of it. It says, as God commanded Noah. Look at verse 16 of chapter 7. You see verse 16, the end of it, looking at your Bible. Those that entered the ark, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him. You see the emphasis here? You You see what a righteous man is? It's someone that does what God says. Now again, we have to qualify it, right? We're reading the book of Romans chapter 3 that there's none righteous, no, not one. So in one sense, there's nobody righteous. In another sense, there are righteous people. There are, there are God's people. God's people seek to do what's right in God's eyes, but still need a righteousness outside themselves. And what's the result of this righteousness? Remember, it pays to be righteous in this generation. Notice it said about Noah in verse 9. He was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. So notice the contrast. Wickedness, a corrupt earth. But in his generation, he stood out as righteous. As one who was saying, I'm not going to try to do what I want to do. I want to turn from that. I want to do what's right in God's eyes. And he sought to do so. 
This is the kind of people we ought to be. I believe there are many here like this that I'm blessed to know in this room. You're not perfect people. But you're seeking to do what's right. You're concerned about doing what's right. You pray, God, show me. I want to do the right thing. And when you stumble and when you sin, you confess it and you turn from it because you want to be one who walks in righteousness. But you may ask yourself, does it pay? Does it pay to seek to live this way? And the answer here is yes, because what happens to, to Noah? It pays off. He survives the flood. Look at chapter 7. He survives the flood. Look at your Bible in verse 16. They loaded up the ark. It finally came. The rain began to fall. And it says in verse 16 of chapter 7, Those that entered the ark, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord made sure he had a refuge. And look at chapter 7, verse 23. Look at the end of it, the last, sentence, last two sentences. It says, They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. What happened to the unrighteous? Payday had come. And what happened to Noah and his family in the ark? It paid to be righteous. It paid to be righteous. It paid to walk righteously. And I really do believe, folks, that one of the things that was intended here, when God had, we believe, Moses to, to write these words down, is that in Moses' generation and the generation after, after Moses, when they read this, you remember... They're on their way to the promised land, or perhaps when they read it, they're in the promised land, and all around them there is wickedness, unrighteousness, and they're tempted and sometimes do go into that unrighteousness, but they've been given the law. They're told, live righteously according to the law that's been given to you. And it's not easy to do so. They see everybody else around them doing something the opposite. But they're given this word to remind them, live as God's given has instructed you in the law because it pays to be righteous. It pays to seek to live in a way that pleases God. Exactly what Noah was doing. God sees wickedness, folks. We see that in the text, don't we? But I want to encourage you this morning. God also sees righteousness. God also sees when we do right things. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 talks about faith. And it tells us about faith there that it pleases Him. That our very lives, and yes, even at the things that we do that are good are indebted to the grace of God. So there's a mystery there about how that works. But isn't it wonderful that even the right things that we do can actually please God. God sees wickedness and He also sees righteousness. When nobody else does, when you're overlooked at work or at school, or not invited to the party because everybody thinks you're goody-two-shoes and you'll just kind of poop on everybody's party if you show up because they know you're not going to do certain things. You get left out. But God sees it and He's pleased by it. And just as there's a payday coming someday for the unrighteous, 
There's a payday coming someday for the righteous. God sees wickedness, but He also sees righteousness. So your context as a follower of Jesus Christ in this generation, when the wicked seem to prosper, when you're trying to be a single adult that's living pure, waiting for the right one, and all your friends are engaging in premarital sex, or they're not really concerned about marrying a Christian like you are, God sees and He is pleased. You're trying to do the right thing at work even though your co-workers cheat your boss and so forth and the boss don't see it. God sees their unrighteousness and He also sees your righteousness. This is an encouragement to us to do the right things before the Lord. It's not in vain. Number three, there's a new beginning for those in the ark. There's a new beginning for those in the ark. You know the ark? You look in chapter 7, they, they load up on the ark. Got seven of the unclean animals, or the clean animals anyway, to, so that they can be used for sacrifice later. Just imagine being an animal on the ark, and you've been riding on the ark for a year, and you get off the ark, and then you get sacrificed. Ain't that a way to go? Because God was providing sacrifices to be used later on. But the ark ride was no cruise, was it? Just imagine the darkness of the ark. I don't know how they lighted it. We can use our imaginations or travel up to the exhibit in Ohio there and look at the ark that's been built and see what they might think about how they had to did it. But I imagine it was dark and damp and stinky. And talk about people getting on your nerves, your family getting on your nerves. I mean, brothers and sisters, they were there for a year before they came off that ark. Forty days and forty nights, they didn't hear nothing but rain. I don't know where in the world they would go to the bathroom. I can't imagine the stench. They weren't allowed to eat meat this time. But I imagine they got tired of eating vegetables. I sure would have. I imagine maybe one of them maybe looked over and said, there's two ostriches over there. That's beginning to look pretty good to me. Noah had three sons, what it says in the book of Genesis, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But he had another son named Jethro. Did you know that? Well, that's according to the FUV version, the Frills Unauthorized version. Oh, Jethro, he got tired of riding on the ark and looked out. Said, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm tired of being on this ark. The old bloated dead bodies floating around maybe woke him up, reminding him that the worst thing that could happen to him wasn't going to happen after all. The picture I'm trying to paint for you here, folks, is yes, Noah was saved in his family. But the righteous do suffer in this world. The ark was no cruise, it was difficult. Some of you in some pretty rocky waters right now because we live in a sinful, sinful world. We suffer along with the unrighteous, but not the way the unrighteous will ultimately suffer. Amen. But God has not forgotten us. 
God does not forget us. He does not forget His promises. He does not forget the righteous. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. What's it say? What's chapter 8, verse 1 say? But God remembered Noah. That don't mean the Lord is up there in heaven and suddenly said, Oh yeah, Noah's on the ark. It's about time to get him off of there. That don't mean that. When the Bible says God remembers something, it doesn't mean suddenly he remembered something he had forgotten in the past. Sometimes it seems like that to us. But when it says the Lord remembered, it says the Lord now was intent to act upon what he had promised to do all along. The Lord remembered Noah and all them them animals and so forth and livestock in the ark. And if you look on down in chapter 8, verse 17, after they sent the birds out and the birds came back and finally one came back with a leaf and one didn't come back at all, they found out there was land. And Chapter 8, verse 17, God was telling them, hey, the earth's dried up, it's time to get off. Look at verse 17. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Now where did you hear that before? That's what God said to Adam and Eve. In the beginning of the world, God said, be fruitful and multiply. Now there's a new beginning. There's a new beginning for those in the ark. It's time to emerge from the ark and enjoy the blessings of a new creation. It's still going to feel the effects of sin. You see that right. You go to the end of chapter 9 and see Noah laying drunk and naked before his own sons. They're emerging... In a new beginning, sort of like a new creation. There's a new beginning for those in the ark. What's that got to do with us? If we're seeking to find refuge in the Lord, and Jesus Christ is our ark that carries us safely through the waters of judgment, if you're reading 1 Peter about it, it means don't jump ship. Don't jump off the ark. It's the message of the book of Hebrews. Stay with Jesus. Don't leave Him. Don't throw in the flag. Stay with Christ. God's not forgotten you. He remembers you. And fourthly and finally, God is pro-God. And God is pro-life. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, God is pro-God. God is for God. Amen? If God is not for God, as one pastor said, then God's an idolater. God is for God above everything. Now how so? Because in this new creation, it's going to be characterized, just as it was supposed to be to begin with, by worship of God. Look at chapter 8, verse 20. First thing happens when Noah gets off the ark. What happens? Y'all know this. You've been to Sunday school. You remember this story. What's what's Noah do when he gets off the ark? Noah, it says in verse 20, built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. They were worshiping God. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So the first thing God did, or Noah did, is he worshiped God. God is pro-God. He's worshiped. There's an expression here by Noah Worship expresses Noah in contrast with the wicked, corrupt people who've all perished in in the flood. Their bodies are still floating in the water as he emerges from the ark, I imagine. 
His worship of God expresses His dependence upon God rather than upon Himself. His impotence before God. His worship, our worship together is is Noah's worship. Expresses our worship to God, our submission to God as King. We don't want to do what's right in our eyes, God, as the rest of the world does. Our worship is an expression of the fact, God, you're our King. We worship you. We want to follow you. We want to do what's right. We want to be righteous people. His worship of God is a confession of our sins against God. And our worship of God is our expression of our need of God's mercy because we sin. And it's an expression to God. His worship as He sacrifices those animals certainly has to be an expression of thankfulness to God for the salvation that God has provided. God is for God. He's being worshipped. And God prefers worship over judgment. Notice how it says it in this verse. Verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. He was pleased by that. Worship, And the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Then he goes on and promises. Brothers and sisters, whatever they say about global warming, you can throw that out the window. Because if you look at the next verse down there, it says there's always going to be seasons. You you don't need to worry about that stuff. There's always going to be fall, spring, winter, and summer. You know that? That's what it says right there. Always going to be. Don't mean that we don't need to be concerned about the environment and all that kind of stuff. But God's promise is, hey, when you see the summer leaves turning brown at the end of summer, getting ready for fall time, the leaves start turning, and you see the snowflakes coming in the wintertime, let it be a reminder to you that God keeps His promises. That God has mercy. And that God prefers worship over judgment. He'd rather men worship Him than have to judge them. God is pro-God. God is pro-life. And even though it says, look at it in verse, in verse 21, neither will I ever strike him in the middle of verse 21. I will never curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is, not was, you see that? Is evil from his youth. The flood's not changed anything about man. Judgment upon men does not change men. They still have evil hearts. But God is pro-life. He's for man to live. But He's also for Himself, for Him to be glorified and not to be shamed by sinful man. So how will God be pro-life and pro-God? On what basis can He be that way? Well, as I conclude... You think about the devastation of the flood and sometimes we look at something like the flood and we think, man, that seems like a... Maybe a disproportionate response of God to the wickedness of man. After all, there were babies and boys and girls killed in that flood. We see the devastation of the flood and it may cause us to recoil at what God has done in the flood. All this corruption, though, by men. All the corruption by men. All the devastation that men have done in God's eyes and all that God has done now to men may cause us to recoil. But we must recoil at the cross. Because it's at the cross that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. 
by His own destruction on the cross. And Jesus was raised incorruptible. Amen. God mercifully warns us of judgment to come. That's what we see in the flood. And He's warning us today, folks. This virus that's going around. And all the horrible things we hear about and see. It's a warning of, of a more worse judgment, a far worse judgment to come. He mercifully warns of judgment and He graciously provides an escape from judgment. That's what happened here in this story. He warned Noah and He provided an escape. Noah didn't save himself. Noah would have never built an ark if God didn't come and tell him to build one because he wouldn't have known there's a flood coming. He was seeking to live righteously, but he still needed God's grace. God's favor, it tells us in chapter 6, verse 8. Noah found favor. That's grace. But it tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, that Noah became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. See, folks, what you need is a righteousness that's outside of you. The way that God is for God, and He's also for life, is that He comes to earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son. Judgment upon men doesn't take care of men's hearts, but judgment upon the Son of God can change men's hearts. And that's what happened. It can be a pleasing sacrifice to God in which God forgives sin and takes those men that sin against Him and adopts them into their family, into His family. So the way to be right with God is not to, not to rely upon your righteousness. Seek to live in a righteous way and know that, that God sees that and is pleased. But please don't misunderstand. The way you live your life will not make you right with God in the end. Jesus came to die to make you right with God. You need a righteousness credited to you, imputed to you from outside yourself. You need what Jesus has done for you on the cross in His perfect life to make you truly right with God. So the ark that we need to flee to today in this old wicked world we're in is the Lord Jesus Christ. Flee to Him and stay in the ark. The ride's going to be bumpy here in this world. And you're going to be tempted to jump ship sometimes. But it pays to be righteous in Jesus Christ. So stay with Jesus. Folks, that's why we meet every Sunday is simply to remind ourselves of that simple truth. Right? That's why we're here. Hey, everybody. Keep trusting in Jesus no matter what happened this past week and no matter what happens next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, uh, sometimes when I read the scripture and read the Bible, it's like the same message could just be preached from every passage of scripture. And really, in a lot of ways, that's true. It all comes back to how much we need you and how much you've provided in the Lord Jesus. Lord, we know that we're, we're made righteous before you through your son Jesus. And I pray that everybody in here is trusting in Jesus for their salvation and not themselves. Lord, help us to be in practice what we are in position before you. Help us to live righteously. Help us when we get discouraged 
maybe we think it's a waste of time. Help us to know that living righteously, that you see it and it pleases you. More than anything, we want to please you. That's a reward in and of itself. Lord, if we came in here with sin this morning and we and we're just intent on hanging on to it, God, I pray you'd be so gracious right now to wake people up and remind them that, that you see it. And they need to flee from it and repent. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to stand right now and sing this hymn together. Let's, let's stand and praise our God together.
this morning that it is well with your soul and it can be well with your soul only if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and that's available to all. God made a promise to Noah there you know at the end it was, and it was really made to all people there that he wasn't ever going to flood the whole earth again that was for every single person he made a covenant with him in that way there's a covenant that God's made through Jesus Christ and he only makes it with those who place their faith in Jesus but it's available to all men so whoever calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. So if you're here this morning or you're watching this morning, hey, get in touch with us. Get my attention as you walk out the door this morning. Let's set up a time to talk. Uh, if you're watching, you can call the church. You know, 618 area code 263-7311. We love, that's my cell phone number. Yeah, I already gave it out. That's all right. If you want to get saved, you can call me anytime you want. All right? Whatever you need. But you call us and let us get in touch with you. I'm going to ask Tim here to close us in prayer. Y'all pray for Caitlin this weekend. She has this, this surgery. It's a big surgery. So y'all keep them in prayer. Tim, would you close us? Father God, um, we come to you this morning blessed to be able to join as a church family, God. Um, we pray that those that are here would be comfortable being here during this time to worship you, God. And that those that are not here, that they would know that we understand um, what they're dealing with, that they're struggling with. And the pandemic or that they might have health issues that they don't need to be around as many people as God. So we praise you for the fact that we do have the option to come together and to live stream God. But I'm just reminded this morning by your word that you've given to us through Pastor God. Um, just some song lyrics that doesn't always happen. There's, who are we that you would be mindful of us, God? 
And also just great is thy faithfulness, God, in summertime and winter and seed time and harvest, God, that your faithfulness never stands, never stalls, it never halters. God, we praise you for that. But um, as pastor preached that you don't forget us, God, we pray that um, as we are human and we do lose sight, we lose track, God, we pray that as we go from here that you would focus our hearts on you, you would remind us and turn us towards yourself, God, as we go through our trials, God, but also as we um, have the joyful times in our life, God, we pray that you would remind us to worship you and to give you glory in all things, whether they be good times or bad, God, so we just praise you for that, we praise you for our church family, um, we don't often see how blessed we are to have the family that we have here, God, so we just pray that, um, we just praise you for being able to come together to worship you, God, and we praise you for a pastor that is so faithful, to preach your word, God, preach it rightfully. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you?
The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.